Welcome back. Thank you so much. Uh, as I mentioned in my introductory remarks, there are so many uh, uh, fascinating issues surrounding surveillance, uh, intelligence, new technologies, uh, that if we were to cover them all with uh, panels of the sort you just saw, this would be uh, a conference that would last approximately three weeks. Uh, and because even I have uh, limits to my uh, capacity to focus on these issues for, uh, for that long, uh, we have for the last couple of years been inviting uh, scholars and activists to present shorter flash talks that focus um, very tightly on a single subject uh, and uh, present work or analysis that they've been doing uh, in a way that allows us, I think, to, to uh, get a sense of the range of hard questions we face as citizens and, and policymakers. Um, so our morning uh, block of flash talks uh, covers uh, issues from facial recognition to social media surveillance to um, uh, to the, the global war on encryption on various fronts. Um, so I'll just very quickly introduce the speakers. If you want fuller biographies, uh, look to the conference website on cato.org. Uh, you will find, uh, in addition to the agenda, links on the speakers' names uh, for more uh, extensive biographies. Uh, we're going to begin with an analysis of recently passed legislation in Australia um, that seeks to mandate uh, law enforcement access to... Uh, encrypted software, encrypted messaging tools. Um, it's, in a sense, it's sort of the, the, uh, a first of its kind, uh, uh, but could be a model for emulation elsewhere. Uh, for that, I want to invite uh, from New America, uh, Sharon Bradford Franklin. Thank you. Uh, I'm Sharon Bradford Franklin with New America's Open Technology Institute. And if you had told me a year ago that I would be here today talking to you about Australia, I would have actually thought you were joking. But I'm really glad to have the opportunity to speak with you today about the law just passed earlier this month in Australia and how this could actually allow the United States to look down under for an encryption backdoor. Got to get the clicker working. Here we go. So for those of you uh, who may not actually be already familiar with the long-standing encryption debate, this is a battle that pits security against security. For years, the US Justice Department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation have been arguing that they are, quote, going dark due to the increasing use of encryption. They've complained that they can no longer access many electronic communications even when they have a valid court order. Many tech companies now have encryption by default and in their products and services, and they simply do not have access to their users' encrypted communications. The Justice Department and FBI want to require that tech companies guarantee that government has exceptional access, or what they now have started calling the use of so-called responsible encryption so that they will always be able to access even encrypted messages. Otherwise, they say, they are hampered in their ability to keep Americans safe from terrorists and other criminals. But security researchers, tech companies, and privacy advocates have pointed out that this would amount to an encryption backdoor that could be exploited by others. There is no way to guarantee that only the US government would be able to use any such mechanism. 
Rather, this amounts to deliberately building vulnerabilities into products and services. And undermining device security for all uh, would harm everyone's privacy and cybersecurity. And it would create new threats that we'll all be victims of criminal activity. In addition, as we explored in a half-day forum that OTI hosted last month, encryption protects economic security and the personal safety and freedom of journalists and individuals in vulnerable communities, including victims of domestic violence. This debate, which has been going on for years in the United States, has now gone global, with a quick flare-up down under in Australia. This past August, the Australian government released what they called an exposure draft of its Telecommunications and Other Legislation Amendment, or Assistance and Access Bill 2018. Unlike the US Congress, which takes months and months, or more likely years, before it passes anything, the Australian Parliament managed to wrap up its consideration of this bill in a mere four months. Following a public comment period on the exposure draft, a slightly modified version of the bill was introduced in Parliament and referred to the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, or PJCIS, which opened a new public comment period. Um, my organization, the Open Technology Institute, organized an international coalition of civil society organizations, tech companies, and trade associations, and we filed three rounds of public comments on the bill, outlining our concerns, which I'll describe in just a moment. The committee held a series of hearings, and then just at the beginning of just last week, the PJCIS issued a report recommending passage of the bill with certain amendments incorporated. Early in the morning, just last Thursday, December 6th, the parliament released an updated version of the bill, including 173 amendments that no one had ever seen before. But by the end of the day, the Australian parliament had passed the bill into law. So what does the Australian law actually do? As one Australian commenter put it, quote, the combined stupidity and cowardice of the coalition and labor now means that any IT product, hardware or software, made in Australia will be automatically too risky to use for anyone concerned about cybersecurity. So we're focusing here on schedule one of the Australian law, which is the one that is designed to undermine the safeguards of encryption. There are also, uh, folks should be aware, other sections of the law that create additional privacy threats and increased powers of government hacking, but we're focusing on Schedule 1, which relates to encryption. Now, the law includes what appears to be an encouraging statement that purports to prohibit the government from demanding the creation of encryption backdoors. And I have it up here on the slide here. Section 317ZG says that the government may not request or require communications providers quote, to implement or build a systemic weakness or systemic vulnerability. And also, that the government must not prevent a communications provider from rectifying a systemic weakness or systemic vulnerability. However, the law grants unprecedented new authorities to the Australian government that undermine this promise. Specifically, the law creates three new and powerful tools for the Australian government. Technical Assistance Requests, or TARs, Technical Assistance Notices, or TANs, and Technical Capability Notices, or TCNs. The requests are supposed to be voluntary, whereas the notices are mandatory. 
And the difference between the TANs and the TCNs depends on which government official is authorized to issue the notice. All of these authorities authorize the Australian government to request or demand any, quote, listed act or thing. Now, that's a long list in the bill, and it includes things like removing one or more forms of electronic protection that are or were applied by or on behalf of the provider. And it also includes modifying or facilitating the modification of any of the characteristics of a service provided by the designated communications provider. In short, these are powers to demand that tech companies weaken the security features of their products. For example, the Australian government could now make the same request to Apple that the FBI made in the 2015 San Bernardino shooter case, that they build a new operating system to circumvent iPhone security features. As Apple explained in the San Bernardino case, building the requested software tool would have made that technique widely available, thereby threatening the cybersecurity of other users. As we know, in the lawsuit here in the US, the United States government argued that under the somewhat obscure All Writs Act, which dates back to 1789, they were permitted to make this demand of Apple. But Apple, supported by other tech companies and privacy advocates, argued that this demand was unconstitutional. The Justice Department ultimately withdrew its demand because the court could resolve, and before the court could resolve the legal question, because the FBI was able to pay the outside vendor to hack into the phone. But in Australia, they now have a specific authority to make these kinds of demands. Another worrisome scenario is that Australia may seek to use its TCN authority in the same way that the United Kingdom is looking to use its new powers, excuse me, its powers. Just last month, Ian Levy and Crispin Robinson of the UK's GCHQ, which is essentially the UK's NSA, put out a proposal in lawfare. Under this proposal, tech companies would be asked or required to add GCHQ as a silent participant in end-to-end -end encrypted chats, and the tech company would suppress the notification to the user. They argue that, quote, you don't even have to touch the encryption to add GCHQ as a ghost user inside the encrypted chat. So there are several other threats posed by the new Australia law's uh, approach to encryption. In our coalition comments, in addition to explaining the breadth of the new powers created by the bill, we also addressed three other key concerns. First, the law lacks any requirement for prior independent review or adequate oversight. Many features of Australia's new law, such as the authorization for technical capabilities notices, were modeled on the UK's Investigatory Powers Act that was passed in 2016. The UK's law also raises threats to digital security and human rights, but Section 254 of the UK's Act does require that judicial commissioners must review and approve proposed technical capability notices before they may be issued. Although we still have questions about the adequacy and independence of this review under the UK law, Australia's TCN authority poses even greater threats to cybersecurity and individual rights because there's no provision requiring any type of prior, let alone independent, review. In addition, Australia has no Bill of Rights. So while the procedures through which tech company, while there are procedures through which tech companies may challenge government requests and orders, these challenges will be more difficult. 
tech companies will not have the same legal arguments available to them based on protecting individual rights as they would in countries like the UK and the US. Second, the law requires undue secrecy. Although the law helpfully requires statistical transparency reporting by the government and permits statistical transparency reporting by tech companies, it also includes very strict non-disclosure requirements whenever the government issues a request or notice to a tech company. Violation of these secrecy rules is a criminal offense punishable by up to five years in prison. And there are no limits to the duration of these gag orders such as we have here for uh, NSLs in the US when the reason for the confidentiality no longer exists. Third, the law's definition of covered designations communications providers is overbroad. It includes anyone who provides an electronic service that has one or more end users in Australia. So this means that any tech company doing business in Australia or anyone providing electronic services in Australia is subject to government demands that they weaken the security features of their products and services. So this is bad for Australia, but what does it mean for us here in the United States? Well, Australia's legislation appears to be part of a coordinated effort by the Five Eyes Alliance. For those of you who may not be familiar with that term, the Five Eyes is an intelligence alliance comprised of Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, and the United States that dates back to World War II. Since 2013, these five nations have also formed a five-country ministerial, which is an annual convening on strategy and information sharing on law enforcement and national security issues. For the past two years, the five nations have focused on strategies and policies to weaken encryption. Just this past August, August of 2018, the five countries released a statement on principles on access to evidence and encryption. And that statement includes that if these governments continue to, quote, encounter impediments in their efforts to access encrypted communications, they may pursue legislative mandates for encryption backdoors. The very same month that that uh, statement came out, Australia released the exposure draft of its encryption bill. So now, Australia's law can provide the United States and other governments with a backdoor to an encryption backdoor. Australia now has the authority to compel providers to create encryption backdoors, and once providers are forced to build weaknesses into their products, other governments can exploit those weaknesses. I've already mentioned the example of Apple versus FBI. Now, if Australia issued a technical capability notice to compel Apple to build a new operating system to circumvent iPhone security features, which is what the FBI demanded in the San Bernardino case, then if Apple complied and built that system, it could no longer argue that it lacked the capacity to turn over data to the US government in similar cases. Similarly, if Australia forced Facebook to re-engineer WhatsApp's encrypted chats to be accessible in response to Australian legal demands, those chats would also be vulnerable to other government's demands. Finally, there is, of course, also a risk that the US government could simply seek to expand its own direct authority by pointing to Australia as the new model for, quote, responsible encryption legislation. So whether it's as a pathway or as a model, the Australian law creates risks to cybersecurity and privacy that extend well beyond Australia's borders. Thank you.
Thanks so much, Sharon. Uh, next up, um, the uh, French philosopher uh, Michel Foucault uh, is known for his analysis of the tight link between uh, surveillance and training or discipline. Um, his book, uh, a book usually translated in English as uh, Discipline and Punish, is in French, Surveiller et Punir, which could be equally well translated to surveil and to punish. Um, and so very naturally, uh, mo close monitoring is always uh, a key part of training and indoctrination. Uh, it's no surprise then that children are often closely monitored uh, as we are teaching them. Uh, that is perhaps a, an inevitable part of, of raising children safely. Uh, but it also means we need to worry about whether we are training them for compliance with surveillance. Uh, as the technological capability to monitor children uh, ever more closely uh, becomes both a reality and widespread in, uh, in use, um, I, I often wonder whether we are uh, preparing children to accept as normal a world in which everything they do is closely scrutinized. Uh, to look at one aspect of that, the social media surveillance of students, uh, I want to invite uh, Rachel Levinson-Walden of the Brennan Center. Great, thank you so much. Um, and Julian, that's really the perfect introduction. I'll be coming back to exactly that point uh, near the end of my presentation. Um, so again, my name is Rachel Levinson Waldman. I'm senior counsel with the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Um, and as Julian said, what I'm going to be talking about today is social media surveillance of students, and especially K through 12 students. And to start this off, I want to talk just for a moment about the prevalence, the sort of deep saturation um, at this point that kids have online. Um, so according to a Pew Internet study from last month, 97%, 97% of 13 to 17-year-olds in the U.S. Have, are on at least one major online social media platform. 95% of American teens have access to a smartphone, and 45% say that they are online almost constantly. Um, so there is clearly a lot of content out there and a lot of time that teens and even younger kids are spending online. And with that social media presence comes social media monitoring. And these tools are sold for a variety of purposes. They're sold as preventing bullying, preventing school shootings, um, potential suicides, and other online threats. And maybe not surprisingly, they're also big business. So spending by public schools nationwide on nine, social, nine major social media monitoring companies, you can see here, and you can see that there are sort of some, some spikes, some uh, you know, mountains and valleys, but overall it's this pretty massive increase in spending starting in 2010 and going up to this spike. There are spikes in 2015, again in 16 and 17, and this big spike in the summer of 2018, potentially driven by the shooting in Parkland, Florida. Um, but public school districts are spending more and more money on automated social media monitoring tools. This is um, it's similar, reflected by keyword searches. So searches for social media monitoring in contracts between public schools and private companies, and again showing these spikes over the last several years, really significant increases, um, and then a major spike in 2018. So increasingly a lot of public money is being spent on these services. 
Now, based on these statistics, you might think that schools are getting more dangerous. But in fact, the opposite is true. Schools are actually getting safer. And while it's true that this country has a unique risk of school shootings among developed countries, and while obviously a single shooting or even a single serious bullying incident is one too many, the overall crime decline in this country holds true in schools as well. So the odds that a K through 12 student will be shot and killed at a public school are about one in 614 million. So by way of contrast, the odds of choking are about one in 3,400. In 1995, 10% of students aged 12 through 18 reported being the victim of a crime at school in the previous six months. In the 2015-2016 school year, just 3% of students did. So in that 20-year period, it went from 10% down to 3%, a pretty major decrease. And in general, over the last two decades, less than 3% of youth homicides and less than 1% of youth suicides have occurred at school. Now, of course, part of the hope with social media monitoring may be that it'll pick up risks off of school grounds as well. But by any measure, school is a pretty safe place to be. Now, the one state in the country that has legislated social media monitoring is Florida. I'm sure everyone here is familiar with the shooting in Parkland, Florida last February, when Nicholas Cruz, a former student at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, shot and killed 17 students and staff members and injured 17 others. In the wake of that shooting, the Florida legislature passed a law that included the creation of an office of state schools within the State Department of Education. That office is required to coordinate with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement to set up a centralized database to facilitate access to a pretty wide range of information, including social media data. The legislation also established a public safety commission, which recently recommended the development of protocols around social media monitoring. Doesn't look like that collection has begun quite yet, but it is likely to do so in the new year. Now, as it turned out, Nicholas Cruz actually had posted online about his intentions before the shooting. And people had taken notice. He was reported to the FBI and local police at least three times for disturbing posts. One call to the FBI warned that he might become a school shooter, and a separate call flagged a YouTube post in which the user had said that he wanted to become a professional school shooter, although the poster wasn't identified as Cruz until after the shooting. So while there certainly were warning signs on social media, it wasn't the case that the district was flying blind. People were seeing those warning signals and were trying to act on them. And what really failed those students wasn't a failure to see those posts. Um, according to a review of the school district's actions that came out in August, it was more that the district itself had failed at never, nearly every turn to provide crews with the educational and support services that he needed. Nevertheless, Florida is embarking on a first-of-its-kind national experiment when it comes to social media data. So there's kind of a big question here, which is, okay, but why not, right? If a single school shooting is one too many, if social media monitoring could catch one future Nicholas Cruz, could catch one future suicidal student, why not do it? If the stakes are that high, what's the harm? And there are a lot of reasons to at least be very cautious about this kind of monitoring. So the first is a real concern about the accuracy of social media monitoring tools. And this plays out in a couple of different ways. 
So one way that these tools can be inaccurate is through overreach. So the fact that they're likely to pull in much more information than is actually going to be useful. By way of example, police in Jacksonville, Florida, set up a social media monitoring tool to search for keywords that were going to be related to public safety or that might indicate some risk of criminal activity. So one of the words that they set up was the word bomb, thinking if that there was some kind of bomb threat, it would turn it up. Well, it turned out that there were no bomb threats that were flagged online. Instead, it was inundated with posts about things like pizza that was the bomb and photo bombs. Uh, so a lot of stuff coming in of very, very little use. The second issue is underreach, by, by which I mean um, that the kinds of risks that social media monitoring tools kind of would like to find often aren't going to appear online at all. So I mentioned earlier that Nicholas Cruz had actually posted online about his intentions and that people had reported them. So it's not clear there what the extra value of monitoring software would have been. And as it turns out, to some extent, he was the exception. So the Brennan Center did an informal survey of major school shootings and unfortunately that is a category, major school shootings, since the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. And there was only one other perpetrator, um, according to the public reporting, that had put up social media postings that strongly indicated an interest in school violence. And that was Adam Lanza, the, the shooter in, the, in Newtown at Sandy Hook. <clears throat> he had posted in discussion forums about the Columbine High School shooting, and he'd operated Tumblr accounts that were named after school shooters. Now, these postings weren't a secret. Fellow users were able to see these. And while they may not have known at the time whether to take this seriously, it's hard to imagine that now these wouldn't have been reported directly to, the, to authorities. In fact, we saw that with Nicholas Cruz, that was exactly what, what happened. Um, and that individual concerned users would, would report this in. The online profiles of other shooters in major school shootings, um, which again are usually get quite a lot of reporting after the fact, don't show anything that would flag them for an automated tool. So for instance, the perpetrator of a 2014 shooting in Troutdale, Oregon, had a Facebook page showing that he liked first person shooter and military themed games like Call of Duty, and he also liked various knife and gun pages. So in retrospect, sure, these seem like warning signs that something were going on. But in fact, the official Facebook page for Call of Duty World War II has nearly 24 million followers. The Remington Arms Facebook page has over 1.3 million likes. So sending up a red flag about every single person who enjoys these pastimes would create a huge quantity of noise for very little signal. And finally, automated social media monitoring tools just have built-in shortcomings. Um, so I'll flag a terrific report from the Center on Democracy and Technology called Mixed Messages, um, which does a lot of research on this. And as their research shows, automated monitoring tools generally work best when the posts are in English, and when the tool is looking for something very concrete. They can be easily fooled by lingo, by slang, pop culture references, things like that. Maybe the best example comes from the 2015 trial of Jokart Tsarnaev, the Boston Marathon bomber. During the trial, the FBI produced as evidence several quotes from his Twitter account to try to show that he himself was an extremist, that he wasn't just following his brother's orders. So for instance, he had tweeted, and, and this was one of the things Agent brought up, a quote that said, I shall die young. 
which maybe was suggesting something about his intent, but it was also a quote from a Russian pop song. And he actually linked to the pop song in the tweet. The agent just hadn't bothered clicking on the tweet to see that this was a, a song lyric. Other quotes that the FBI relied on were from Jay-Z songs and South Park episodes, among other things. Social media is incredibly contextual. And neither automated tools nor often human analysts are that great at parsing out that context. The second major concern is the risk of discrimination. And this, this kind of comes in two forms. So the first is that the keywords themselves that the tools will be set to, to flag on will be discriminatory. So for instance, an ACLU report found that when the Boston Police Department set up a social media monitoring tool, the hashtags that it was flagging included Black Lives Matter, Ferguson, Muslim Lives Matter, and Ummah, the Arabic word for community. Now, needless to say, these words aren't signs of a public safety threat. So these tools are only as good as the people who are using them, and there are a lot of ways to use them to further a discriminatory mindset. The second is the risk of discriminatory impact. So whatever keywords are flagged, there's going to be a huge amount of discretion in what's done with the results, including which students are brought in, who's punished by the school, and even who's subjected to criminal justice consequences. We already know that students of color at every level of schooling experience harsher discipline than white students, even for the same infractions, and even when they commit infractions at lower rates than white students. So there's a real concern that social media monitoring could contribute to the school-to-prison pipeline. I suspect folks here remember Ahmed Mohammed, the Muslim teenager who brought a homemade clock to his Dallas area high school and was then arrested on the suspicion that it concealed a bomb. He was well known at his school for bringing electronics, tinkering, fixing other people's electronics, and he had told his teachers and the principal repeatedly that it was, in fact, a clock. It raises suspicions that the, uh, that the scrutiny that he was put under and his ultimate arrest was essentially grounded in Islamophobia. On the social media front, an Alabama high school paid a former FBI agent to go through students' social media accounts uh, on the basis of anonymous tips. The district ultimately expelled over a dozen students on the basis of what he found online. 86 of the students expelled were black, even though blacks made up only 40% of the student body. Now, not surprisingly, where people are mistakenly identified as posing a threat because of their social media posts, the consequences can be serious. One Connecticut teenager posted on Snapchat a picture of a toy airsoft gun that resembled a real rifle. In his words, in terms of explaining why he put it up, he thought it was awesome, and he knew his friends would also think it was awesome. Another student saw the post and was worried about it, so he reported it to school officials. This does not necessarily strike me as a crazy thing to do, although as Zach noted, as the student noted, if officials had Googled the name on the side of the gun of the manufacturer, they would have seen that it was a toy gun, even though it did bear a resemblance to, to a real one. But instead of discussing it with him and resolving the issue, potentially with some lessons about responsible social media use and thinking before you posting, he was not only suspended for the day, but arrested for breach of peace, a misdemeanor offense. Now, because it's so hard 
to reliably pinpoint individual social media posts that actually indicate some kind of live threat, monitoring companies have kind of a perverse incentive. They have an incentive to some extent to sweep up everything so that they can assure their customers that they'll spot that needle in the haystack. And at the same time, they have very little reliable way of gauging their effectiveness. A 2015 investigation by the Christian Science Monitor revealed that none of the three major school social media monitoring companies they looked into had firm metrics for measuring effectiveness. And at least one said, well, basically we know that we've succeeded you know, when we get a call from a school saying that you know, something we sent them was interesting. So it's really a perfect storm for a mindset of more, more, more. At the same time, parents and students often know very little about these tools. Research shows that while social media monitoring companies may assume that students are assenting to being tracked by virtue of posting on public sites, students more often believe that companies are prohibited from sharing personal information with third parties. So there's a real lack of information about how these programs operate, or rather there's asymmetrical information. And finally, and this goes to Julian's point at the beginning, it's worth thinking about what it means for students to be under constant surveillance online. So as a practical matter, they may just stop posting or start posting less or in more private forums, which will simply blunt any effectiveness that these tools would have had. Maybe more concerningly, it teaches students to expect surveillance and even to anticipate an authority figure's opinion and react accordingly. Now, some of this you could say is good digital hygiene. I think we all know that something that we post publicly, we need to think before we post about what that looks like, who might see it now, and who might see it in the future. But it's not clear that it's healthy for students who are learning about citizens' role in a democracy to know that they are under that surveillance all the time and to be acting accordingly. So what does this all mean? At the very least, before a school or a school district rolls out a social media uh, monitoring program, it's incumbent on officials to weigh the costs and the benefits and to involve parents and students in a frank discussion of what it means. And if they decide not to set forth on a monitoring program, they should remember that they are most likely not going dark, that there are a lot of concerned people out there who will spot posts and flag them. Thank you so much. Uh, this does remind me there's a, 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 a acquaintance who is a science fiction writer uh, who's more optimistic uh, view of this is that this is great because we are uh, training our children to develop habits of fairly sophisticated comsec and uh, counterintelligence tradecraft just to be able to have a normal childhood and so the next generation will all be very sophisticated about uh, evading surveillance I suppose we'll find out um, so next we have uh, two uh, talks that, that focus on uh, privacy in public, in a sense, the, uh, the myriad ways that just walking uh, down an ordinary city street, uh, we are being observed in ways uh, we may not recognize, and also the ways uh, existing networks of surveillance, like closed circuit cameras, um, can be transformed in, in fairly deep ways by uh, existing infrastructure becoming a platform for new methods of monitoring. So uh, the first of these uh, is going to be uh, an examination of uh, 
camera networks uh, for facial recognition surveillance from uh, Jake LaPeruc on the of the uh, a project on government oversight. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me here. Um, uh, I'm Jake LaPeruc. I'm a senior counsel at the project at uh, the Constitution Project at POGO, where I focus on surveillance issues. And I'm really be excited to be talking about facial recognition and a specific aspect of facial recognition, how um, cameras and various aspects can empower and grow facial recognition surveillance into dragnets. So as just a quick start about facial recognition surveillance itself, this is no longer a sci-fi technology of minority report um, that we will see in the distant future. It is happening now. The FBI conducts over 4,000 facial recognition searches every month on average. A quarter of all state and local police departments have the ability to conduct facial recognition scans as well. Customs and Border Protection has a biometric exit program that uses facial recognition for outgoing flights. They are planning to spread this to airports in general, as well as seaports and land ports across the country. And ICE is looking to buy facial recognition technology as well. So that is the state of facial recognition. It is a very live and real surveillance threat. Now, facial recognition depends on pre three key factors to be a powerful force for surveillance. First, you need a database um, of photos that are identified with people. The FBI has that. They have about half of all American adults in a photo database. You need very powerful software technology that can scan across hundreds of millions of photos and scan faces rapidly. Lots of companies are developing this technology. The government is as well. And then third, what I really want to focus on is you need a network of cameras that you can tap into and that you can use to see people's faces everywhere all the time. Now, there are four areas where this, um, you have the potential to build these camera networks. First, government surveillance cameras, CCTV. Second, police body cameras. Third, privately owned security cameras. And last, social media photo databases. So let's start first with government surveillance programs, CCTV programs. Uh, about a decade ago, then Chicago Mayor Richard Daley said that he expected one day we would have a police camera basically on every corner. Um, I want you to keep that quote in mind as we talk more and more about CCTV in American cities. But first, let's go to where we truly have um, a CCTV photo dragnet and where it seems that we've achieved Big Brother status. And that is in China. China is by far... Um, the most powerful network of government surveillance cameras that we can see in the world. The country has an estimated 200 million government-run surveillance cameras throughout the country, and the effects of this are quite profound. If you look at cities, these networks are incredibly dense and incredibly powerful. For example, Beijing maintains over 46,000 CCTV cameras that blanket the city, State media and police in Beijing boast that this network allows them to have 100% coverage of the, of the city and see everything that is going on all the time. Now, this can have really powerful impacts for facial recognition. So, for example, recently a BBC reporter asked to test this system. He went to a city of 3.5 million people, um, gave his photo to the government to be put into its system, and asked them to find him. Using their cameras and their Earth systems, the automated facial recognition software tracked him down and found him throughout that entire city, three and a half million people, in a mere seven minutes. So 
that is surveillance cameras at its peak, but CCTV is also at America to, in America to a strong degree. It's already being instituted in large cities such as New York, Chicago, Washington, and Los Angeles. In New York, there is a CCTV network hub. Um, this is called the Domain Awareness System. The way it works is that you have all cameras networked into a centralized hub that can be subject to real-time viewing, analysis, and um, other tools. Facial recognition could become one of those in the future. Oakland considered building its own domain awareness hub. This would have hooked up cameras um, all across the city uh, used by government involving everything from Port Authority to those on police cars to cameras outside schools. Smaller cities such as St. Louis and New Orleans also have mass CCTV networks and centralized hubs that they're used to watch. Uh, but the city with the largest by far CCTV network in the United States is Chicago. Chicago is the closest to achieving Big Brother stats in America. Right now, Chicago maintains a police surveillance network of cameras that is over 30,000 total cameras in the city. Um, this in some ways actually surpasses the level of surveillance dragnet that you'll see in China. Although 30,000 cameras in Chicago is less than the total 46,000 in Beijing, if you look at uh, area density for cameras, the 128 cameras per square mile on an average in Chicago is far, far higher than that in the Beijing dragnet that covered 100% of the population. Now this can have really powerful effects for facial recognition and it's starting to in America. Uh, we're seeing this primarily first in Orlando. Orlando's currently running a pilot program with Amazon's real-time recognition, uh, facial recognition program. The way this system works is that you have cameras scanning throughout the city. They will um, try to scan faces, find people, identify them, and then flag any persons of interest, whatever persons of interest means. Not sure. So that is government CCTV. Next, um, I want to look at police body cameras. This is probably the area of greatest risk in terms of establishing video surveillance dragnets in the United States. And the simple reason for that is that body cameras are becoming incredibly popular in America and in American police departments. Axon, America's greatest, largest uh, body camera producer in the United States, has uh, systems already in over half of American largest cities. This isn't a huge surprise because Axon offers their body cameras to police departments for free, so long as you then use Axon's video storage system. Studies uh, from recent years of police departments indicate that 97% of the largest police departments in America all either have body camera programs in place, are in pilot and testing stages, or if they don't have them yet, are planning to build them in the future. So this really is going to be a universal phenomenon of police wearing body cameras, and that being a common thing we will see on our streets as B-cops walk by. Now, why is this a really, really big deal for a proliferation of government surveillance cameras? It's because cities have lots of police in them. On average, localities have between 16 and 24 police officers for every 10,000 residents. When you look at big cities, this amount gets much higher. Plenty of cities have as many as 40 officers for every 10,000 residents, or more DCs over 50. Uh, if you look at area density, you can also see that some cities are very populated with police officers. For example, 10 different cities have over 20 police officers per square mile. Topping the list is New York City, which has well over 100 police officers per every square mile. Now, in terms of facial recognition, we have actually seen a little bit of progress here. 
Exxon uh, recently backtracked on a long-term plan to put facial recognition in its body cameras. They acknowledge the fact that uh, this tech really in a lot of ways is very flawed, very prone to misidentification. So they scrapped plans that might have happened as soon as this year to put facial recognition in its system. But not all vendors are taking that cautious approach. Some are charging ahead with facial recognition and body cameras. And it's only a matter of time before uh, companies like Axon are probably satisfied that it's good enough for their work and begin to institute it. After all, an Axon VP uh, described their interest in body cameras a couple years ago by saying that by putting facial recognition in body cameras, one day every cop in America would be RoboCop. Now this is very worrying because while virtually all police departments are charging ahead with police body cameras, very few are setting rules and standards for facial recognition. According to a scorecard on body cameras maintained by Upturn in the leadership conference, um, basically no cities that operate body camera programs have effective rules on facial recognition. And that is many, many cities that are not acting with appropriate standards. So that's police body cameras. So next I'm going to talk about private surveillance cameras and capacity to build government surveillance networks from them. Now, co-opting private surveillance cameras is similar to CCTV. It's another way that government could potentially build out surveillance, video surveillance networks, but do so with very little work without the infrastructure and at a fraction of the cost. We may not have the 200 million surveillance cameras that China does, but America does have over 30 million privately owned security cameras throughout the country. Uh, so given that, given the potential to simply tap into these instead of building your own cameras, it's no surprise that government may want to turn this into this. By the way, as a quick aside, a couple of those cameras are Amazon's Ring doorbell. It's a video doorbell system. Just last night, uh, news broke that Amazon had patented technology to build facial recognition into those doorbells and connect it to police networks and notify them whenever anyone suspicious came up. So um, another fun innovation from Amazon. Now, police departments are not just thinking about this idea. They are proactively soliciting owners of private security cameras, asking for registration of security cameras, and asking for them to engage in formal agreements whereby those cameras can be accessed and readily used by law enforcement in video surveillance networks. So I mentioned New York before and the domain awareness system that they have there that allows real-time streaming of video cameras. Of the 6,000 cameras that are connected to New York's network, two-thirds are actually privately owned cameras that have agreements that allow the New York Police Department to access and use them. Washington, D.C. and a lot of other cities actually offer incentives to try to get people to hook up their surveillance cameras into police networks. So here, for example, is uh, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser saying, please purchase security cameras, please connect them to our networks, we will pay you to do this. Excellent use of emojis, Mayor Bowser. So that is privately owned security cameras. Again, in, in, in terms of effect, it, it's very similar to government CCTV. It's a network of stable cameras that could eventually provide a video dragnet that could be co-opted for facial recognition, but this is simply another way to build it out and a pretty severe risk given that we, we don't have the option of potentially stopping government in its tracks from building these cameras. The cameras are already there. We're just worrying about um, potentially having law enforcement tap into them. All right, so last I want to talk about social media photos. Uh, this is a bit of a different vein in that we're not talking about cameras taking images, but rather images that are already being stockpiled. Nonetheless, 
social media photos are potentially the greatest risk um, in terms of a surveil of a photo dragnet that could be used or co-opted by government for facial recognition. And that's because of the sheer size of these photo databases. Um, we've already seen facial recognition used for social media to a limited degree by the firm Geofedia. A few years ago, they got caught um, and admitted that they, during protest, had run social media photos through facial recognition technology during protests in Baltimore to find individuals with any outstanding warrant and directly direct arrest and remove them from the crowd. Now, luckily, when this came out as a product of ACLU research, companies responded properly. They blocked and shut down Geofidia's access to their services. It's really important that social media companies um, continue to be vigilant on this front to limit their API to prevent photo databases from becoming a means of government surveillance and facial recognition surveillance. But I think it's also really important that companies start to think not just about um, data scanning and harvesting on their platforms openly through API access, but also about court orders and scanning through those means. We've seen that similar things like this in the recent past. For example, a couple years ago, Yahoo received and complied with a court order asking that they scan all email content in their databases for specific bits of content that the government was looking for. It's not hard to imagine the government coming with a similar court order to someone that maintains photo databases and asking for a mass scan to find very particular face prints. So uh, we have uh, Google talking later today about surveillance transparency, Facebook talking about tr surveillance transparency. These companies maintain very large photo databases. Google has over 200 million users store photos in its cloud photo service, including 24 billion selfies. Facebook has over 350 million photos uploaded every single day. It would be really great as these companies continue to build out what are already fantastic surveillance transparency reports that are getting better all the time to think about possibly including a warrant canary for facial recognition so that if the government ever does come with this sort of broad excessive order saying we want to start scanning all your photos for facial recognition purposes, we will get the heads up and be able to start acting. And with that, I kind of want to conclude by talking about what actions can we take if we start to see these activities? How should we respond? First of all, there's a lot of potential at the local level. So before I mentioned Oakland had a proposed domain awareness system that would have connected all of their government cameras into a hub, this actually was a really great success story. Oakland activists, when they found out about this, got organized, got very mad, um, talked a lot to the city government about it, and got it shut down. That's the sort of thing we can see in other cities if we take action. And I want to give a shout out to a great program that's going on right now, the CCOP campaign. This is an effort um, to improve transparency and limit surveillance properly in cities all across the country. I'm sure as that campaign goes on, it's going to continue doing a lot of great work to limit video surveillance and limit advanced surveillance tools like facial recognition being built into cameras. On the federal level, we have a lot of potential in terms of limiting and conditioning funds. So we talked a little bit about government CCTV. A lot of funds for local government CCTV networks don't come from those localities. They come from the federal government. DOJ funds CCTV in police grants very often. For example, Orlando, which is now running a CCTV real-time facial recognition network, originally received funds for CCTV from the Department of Justice. It would be great if in the future when DOJ handed out funds for CCTV surveillance, video surveillance networks, they said you cannot use this for facial recognition or set really strict guidelines and limits on how it could be used. 
DHS funds surveillance cameras for cities on a larger degree as well. Again, this is another opportunity where setting strict rules, guidelines, and limits could be a very effective way from stopping these video surveillance networks from being turned into mass facial recognition, location tracking, and scanning networks. And finally, the Department of Justice also issues grants in tens of millions of dollars every year for police body cameras. But again, we do not see virtually any departments putting in good rules for facial recognition on body cameras. It would be a vast improvement if when DOJ was handing out its grants for body cameras, they said, you need to put in effective rules and guidelines and limits to protect privacy before we give you all this money. So those are some actions we should take. Um, I do think it is very important that we take now because we are very quickly approaching the point where we're all going to, on a daily basis, be much like that BBC reporter tracked down through an automated computer system that is being monitored with a million little eyes. Thank you very much. Uh, you can read more about our work at pogo.org and looking forward to the rest of the conference. So the classic feature of surveillance that uh, makes it uh, a mechanism of power is that it is unequal. In the Jeremy Bentham panopticon, uh, the prisoners in this ultimate surveillance prison know that they are under potential observation. They can be seen but can't see the viewer. So when it comes to public networks of cameras monitoring us, uh, maybe one of the most effective things we can do uh, in order to encourage people to uh, react to the changes that are happening around them is to be aware of them. Uh, and so I was really fascinated by a tool that the Electronic Frontier Foundation has developed uh, to try and help people recognize the ways in which uh, surveillance in public is exploding around us. To talk about that, I want to invite uh, Dave Moss of EFF. Uh, thank you for having me today. Um, <clears throat> my name is Dave Moss, and I'm with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And if you're not familiar with who we are, we're based in San Francisco. We've been around since 1990, and we exist to make sure that our rights and liberties uh, continue to exist as our society's use of technology um, advances. Uh, I particularly work on EFS Street Level Surveillance Project, which aims to that ensure there is transparency, regulation, and public awareness of the various technologies that law enforcement is uh, deploying in our communities. And a lot of times that work looks like filing public records requests. So, for example, with license plate readers, uh, EFF teamed up with the organization Muckrock to file hundreds and hundreds of public records requests around the country to find out how uh, law enforcement agencies were sharing license plate reader data amongst themselves. Or, let's say drones. We'll file a public records request for mission log reports on how uh, to show how UC Berkeley police used drones to surveil protesters in 2017. Or we'll file a public records request with the San Francisco District Attorney's Office to get a spreadsheet uh, with geolocations of every surveillance camera in their database, uh, similar to what uh, Jake was just talking about. Um, and this is all a problem because too often our work looks like this. We are chucking public records at people saying, you know, here you go, here's some documents on Document Cloud, or here's, you know, a, a white paper we wrote, or a 3,000 word blog post, or even worse, 
It's me standing in front of you doing a PowerPoint presentation, and if we're lucky, I have a funny cartoon to go with it. I don't have one today, so I had to use this one. Um, really, uh, our work should look like this to the public. Uh, I contextualize within their communities. Uh, if I could, I would run a, uh, a, a walking tour company where I could take people around and show them the various surveillance technology around them. Um, I'm a very busy person, and I don't know that doing tour groups of six or seven people is really the most effective way to get our message across. However, maybe this concept can transfer over to something like virtual reality. Um, Taking a step back, uh, we look at virtual reality and we look at, at law enforcement technology, police are already working on, on virtual reality stuff. So this is a company out of Georgia called Motion Reality that uh, has a warehouse size space where police officers put on virtual reality helmets. They're given uh, real feeling, realistic feeling, uh, fake you know, electronic firearms, and they're wired up head to toe, and they go and they run scenarios, and that can be replayed back so they can see what they did right, what they did wrong. Uh, one of the mo my favorite things about this is that they are also covered in, I guess, electrodes, and so if they're shot, they get shocked um, and demobilized in that part of their body. There's a company that has taken uh, uh, one of these Oculus Go's and modified it to work as a replacement for field sobriety tests. Uh, so the whole flashlight thing would happen within a, a VR visor. Um, and then there's a surveillance aspect. Uh, this is something called uh, bounce imaging, and it is a little ball covered with uh, little cameras. And a SWAT team officer might chuck that into a hostage situation or whatever. And then somebody could sit outside in virtual reality looking around uh, before they go in and then recording a 360 view of everything that's going on. Um, so I haven't looked at that. What can we do on the other side with, with VR? Um, I'm going to give you a quick background, uh, a little brief history of our organization in VR. This is our one of our founders, uh, both a lyricist for the Grateful Dead as well as a digital pioneer. And in 1990, he wrote an essay in which he had, you know, after he had gone and visited some of the early VR companies, and he came back and he was amazed. He thought it was a psychedelic experience. Of course, he thought a lot of things were a psychedelic experience back then because I think he was on psychedelics quite a big chunk of the time. But he was excited, this is the next big thing. Welcome to virtual reality. We've leapt through the looking glass. Now we're gonna jump 25 years because not a lot happened since then. But in 2015, uh, we finally saw VR start to move towards the mass commercial market. Uh, this was the Oculus Rift, this was the HTC Vive, this was the PlayStation VR. They all kind of came out early 2016. And for our organization, there were two big questions we were looking at. First of all, what are the digital rights implications of virtual reality technology on our society? And two, what is the potential for virtual reality as an advocacy tool and an educational tool? Uh, we'll start with the, 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 what I think is a privacy element. Uh, the Intercept had a great piece in 2016 about uh, hypothesizing that virtual reality might be the most nefarious kind of digital surveillance uh, uh, you know, with regards to the internet uh, yet. And I, I tend to agree with this. This voiced a lot of the concerns I was having uh, and we were talking amongst ourselves and we hadn't seen really floated publicly yet. And the reason is biometrics. Virtual reality tends to rely on our physical characteristics in order to function. So on a very basic level, that is 
how your head is moving, the distance between your hand and your head, how long, you know, how long your arms are, if you're left-handed or right-handed. But even something so simple as how your head is moving in a virtual reality environment can be correlated to mental health conditions. Um, more advanced VR technology is starting to involve uh, devices that measure your breath or track your eyes or map out your facial expressions, and that's a whole other word of biometrics. And then one of the creepiest things is when you have companies that, in order to gather sort of reactional biometrics, are throwing stimulus at you in a fairly quiet manner without saying why, so they can find something measurable on how you, you respond to it. Um, we're not going to get too much into augmented reality, but that's going to also present uh, even more problems because a lot of the devices are scanning the world around you uh, in order to produce content. Um, Something interesting that came up as well is that there was a research study by the Extended Mind in Pluto VR that found that current state of play, 90% of VR users are already taking some sort of steps to protect their privacy, whether that is adjusting their Facebook settings or using an ad blocker. And while three quarters of uh, users were okay with companies using their biometric data for product development, uh, the overwhelming majority was uh, very much opposed to that biometric information being sold, anonymized or not, uh, to other uh, entities. Now, as far as VR as an advocacy tool, uh, we're not the first ones to try this. Uh, Planned Parenthood has a, a, an experience called Across the Line that uh, puts people in the position of a woman trying to seek reproductive health services at a clinic that has a whole lot of angry protesters there. Um, PETA has a couple of experiences that they take around to college campuses and other locations where they challenge people to step inside a, a factory farming situation. What is it like to be a calf at a factory farm or a chicken? Um, and then there's some, some groups out of, out of Brookline, Massachusetts that worked with the United Nations Environmental Assembly to do uh, virtual reality visualizations of uh, data on... Um, uh, air pollution, and they took that and they ran that through a bunch of, of UN delegates uh, in Nairobi. So that brings us to EFF's Spot the Surveillance Project. Um, and this is, you know, at its base, a virtual reality experience that uses a very basic simulation to teach people about the various spying technologies that police may deploy in their communities. And when we were starting to pursue this in the early stages, we had some considerations. We wanted it to be a meaningful advocacy experience. We wanted to not collect biometric information. Uh, we wanted it, you know, as an organization that supports open source and accessibility to technology, we wanted to make sure it worked on multiple platforms and not just the Oculus store, or the Vive store. Um, we wanted it to be, you know, also function on a modest budget because we are a nonprofit and we are not Sony. Um, when I mean, say a meaningful advocacy experience, uh, we didn't want to rely on the novelty factor of VR. You can basically take anything and put it in VR, and the first, if it's somebody's first time using the VR, they'll be like, wow, this is amazing, regardless of what it is. But we wanted to make sure that ours was presenting our research in a way that only VR could allow. Um, and we didn't want people to just be watching a movie in VR. We wanted them to be doing something, interacting with the, with the world, uh, and to be challenged by it. And we wanted people to learn information that even though they were experiencing it in a virtual world, we wanted them to be able to carry that back to the real world. Uh, so the concept is 
somebody, you know, once you put the headset on, and people, we'll have demos during the lunch break, but you can put it on, you're placed in a, a street scene, uh, it's in Western Edition neighborhood of San Francisco, where there is a police encounter going on between a young citizen and two officers. And you look around, and as you find something, you get a pop-up and a voiceover explaining what it is. It's not meant to, like, how quickly can you go through it and score points about the surveillance technology. It is supposed to be an educational tool. Um, and the, there were four goals. One was, can we do a virtual reality? As a nonprofit, can we do a virtual reality experience? Can we do it cheaply? And if we can do it the first time, maybe we can do other things down the road. Um, number two was whether just, just to educate people about the, the, the forms of surveillance. Then we also wanted to help them figure out where they are in their communities. And then finally, we had this thought that Police encounters are very stressful situations. Protests are very stressful situations sometimes. Things move very quickly. But it can be useful for people to take note of what surveillance technology they saw in those scenes. So perhaps by putting people in a, situ uh, a simulation, in a controlled environment, where they're able to gain practice uh, looking for these technologies, it might carry over to these higher stress situations. Um, so we decided not to go with a computer-generated environment and just go with a, a, a 360-degree photo. Uh, this is the Ricoh Theta V. Um, you can see it right here, and it's also on the screen. It's got two concave lenses, one on each side, and it captures just beyond 180 degrees on each side and then stitches them together. So you're able to take a photo of everything. If I used it right now, you would get all of this, you would get all of this. The only thing that you might not get is just the very base of the tripod uh, underneath the camera. Um, but this helped us get past of what people refer to as the uncanny valley uh, when it comes to video games. The more you try to create a realistic person or a realistic environment, the more creepy it is to people. But by using an actual photo with a real scene, with a few things photoshopped in, it, it, it bypassed that altogether. Um, this is what the photo looks like that we took. Um, it's obviously, once you're in the virtual reality headset, it wraps all its way around you. Uh, but you can see there is a, a, a scenario there um, going on. And you can kind of see us at the bottom here. I'm going to show you a little bit. This is what it actually looked like. Um, and you don't see this in the game, so this is like a behind-the-scenes kind of exclusive here. Um, we were just kind of hiding under this, uh, a longer version of this pole that went about this high. And we're just kind of hiding there outside this police station, hoping police would come outside. And eventually they did. And it being San Francisco, they didn't question two people with a weird piece of technology on the street. Um, <laughs> Which was great because you know it was kind of the perfect shot for us. Um, for those of you who are not going to have a chance to try it today, this is what it looks like in there. If you looked over at the body cam, you'd get a pop-up about it that explains what it is and has a voiceover because we didn't want to make sure we didn't. You know, it's such a visual medium. We didn't want it to just be that you have to be fully sighted to explain. You know, to enjoy this experience or to learn from it. So if you are only able to see out of one eye or you are uh, have limited visibility but you have a, a certain amount of awareness of, of an environment, you can actually go in and still learn things through audio. Uh, we did our beta launch on November 5th. Um, this is at the Internet Archive uh, at the uh, Aaron Swartz International Hackathon. That's actually Brewster Kale, the uh, founder of the Internet Archive, testing it out, which was a real honor. But I think for the most part, we are looking at having tables like this. This would most, like, there's not a lot of, at this point, 
not a lot of people have these devices in their homes, even though like this one here just kind of dropped down to $200 recently. Not a lot of people have it, but it is something that we can take to conferences. Uh, we can have our grassroots activists, when they're going to visit community groups, bring it with them, just like they would bring uh, one-pagers or brochures or things like that. They could actually bring one of these with them. Um, we've run it through probably about 500 people in the last month, which, you know, if you think about it in terms of an activism organization, if you're able to spend seven to nine minutes with somebody, getting them to like only exclusively focus on surveillance, that is incredible. I mean, that's like thousands of, you know, that's, that's a lot of time. Um, but it was available on the internet, and so one of the things that I found really gratifying is, you know, Portland, Maine is about as far from San Francisco as you can get uh, while staying in the United States, but we see that there are maker spaces and hacker spaces and media labs that are trying this out and having people demo it. And we started to see social media respond to it as well. Uh, my favorite tweet is this one in the middle. Um, VR tech is so effing rad, I just went spinning through my apartment pinging spy tech on the screen of my tracking device. LOL sob. And I think LOL sob is exactly what we were going for with this. So I feel, I feel pretty good about that. Um, so as far as next steps for us, uh, you know, we're still in beta mode, so we're going to continue doing demos to gather user feedback. Um, we're going to improve the experience. Um, one of the things with working open source technology is that, uh, is that sometimes there might be a tweak in the language and then everything breaks. Um, and so sometimes we've had some bugs come up and we have to fix them and we need to get everything stable for an April 2019 launch. And if, once we have that, we'll start sending it out into communities. Maybe we'll come up with an educational curriculum so teachers can do it. Um, but then after that, we have to look at, well, what would the next version of this project be? Um, and we have a few ideas. You know, Some of them are, well, let's do an Internet of Things version. Let's do a home office where you look around and you see the Nest, you see a printer, you see all these ways that you might be surveilled through your devices in your home. Or maybe we do one where not everyone is like into San Francisco and they want to know what it's like in Iowa or they want to know what it's like in New York City. So maybe we just build the same thing for various areas. Or maybe we just abandon VR altogether and we go on to AR and we have some way for people's phones to be able to uh, project things for them into the, into the world. I mean, all of these depend on how the technology develops, what kind of interest we get into it, whether there is a return on investment, what kind of grants there are. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a new world and you know, we don't know where it's going to be in a year and we don't know where it's going to be in five years. But I can tell you I know where it's going to be after at lunchtime, and that is just outside the lunchroom, where if you can come try it out, I've got two of the devices, and I'm happy to show you how the camera works or anything like that. And that is all I have. You can, if you do have a headset at home or you just want to play around with it on your computer browser, it's at eff.org slash spot. Thanks, Dave. That's, uh, I, I love this idea. I don't know if anyone is familiar with uh, a concept called the Tetris effect. Uh, this is the idea that uh, when people play games, especially that involve sort of repetitive pattern-recognizing behavior, very often it spills over into the, their sort of non-game lives. The Tetris effect is named after the tendency of people who play a lot of Tetris to start seeing sort of shapes everywhere and think about how they could fit them together. Um, this shows up diegetically in the Assassin's Creed uh, games as the bleeding effect, where someone who uh, is sort of reliving a simulation of his ancestors' lives um, uh, takes on their sort of superhuman murder stealth abilities, uh, and that seems both unrealistic and undesirable, but, uh, <laughs> but it might be desirable to imagine a population trained on games that teach them about spotting surveillance uh, technology in the world around them, uh, a more useful version of the Tetris effect. Uh, turning back to the question of encryption, um, as we heard from Sharon Bradford Franklin earlier, um, 
law enforcement have for years now been uh, complaining that the spread of encryption is causing them to go dark, making it more difficult to do uh, electronic surveillance of communications. Uh, there's a fascinating report from the Center for Strategic International Studies uh, that uh, really points out that there are a lot of ways uh, that difficulties law enforcement is having with intercepting electronic communications uh, really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the need for back doors and that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit being left on the table uh, that we ought to examine before we talk about legislating uh, breaches in or uh, platforms for breaches in uh, this, the tools we rely on to secure us. To talk about that, I want to invite uh, 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 Jen Daskal to uh, discuss the report, which I believe you'll find on the table outside. Great. Thank you, Julian, um, and, um, and thanks to, to Cato for putting on this excellent conference. So as Julian said, the focus of my talk today is the range of challenges that law enforcement faces in accessing, accessing digital evidence separate and apart from the encryption-related challenges. Um, and this talk stems from a report that I worked on with a co-author, Will Carter, under the auspices of the Center for Strategic and in International Studies, or what many of us know as CSIS. Now, the debates about encryption undoubtedly will continue, but it was, is, and is emphatically more so our view after writing this report and working on this report, that while encryption and the debates about encryption have taken up so much of the limelight, there are a range of other challenges that law enforcement faces that need to be dealt with, um, and they can be dealt with um, relatively easily, and they need to be dealt with now. And so as, and that these challenges will continue no matter what happens with respect to encryption, no matter if, in fact, there ever were a clear decryption mandate, there would still be these other ongoing challenges that need to be dealt with. And so as our title, Low Hanging Fruit, indicates, these are problems that we think can be relatively easily solved. Not completely. Um, nothing in this space ever leads to a complete solution. And we make a mistake if we assume that we are seeking a complete solution or that we're ever trying to eliminate totally some of the friction in the process. Some of that friction is, in fact, healthy. But some of the friction is unnecessary and actually collectively harmful to both security and to privacy. And minimizing that friction is not only a laudable goal, um, but one that is eminently achievable. So to that end, um, I'll just note that the report that we worked on was endorsed by a number of um, individuals um, and also groups and entities. It was endorsed by the former CIA director, John Brennan, former FBI general counsel, Ken Weinstein, two former deputy attorney generals, Larry Thompson and Jamie Gorelick, the former Boston commissioner, Police Commissioner Ed Davis, the former Assistant Attorney General for National Security, David Chris. It's also been praised by a number of different groups and providers, and several providers have already introduced a number of reforms consistent with what we called for in this report. So now that I've given you the hard sell, um, I'm going to spend the remainder of my time talking about the substance and talk a little bit about the methodology that we used in doing this report, um, a little bit about our findings and our ultimate recommendations. So this report stems from about a year's worth of research, including a series of qualitative interviews with state, local, and federal law enforcement officials, 
prosecutors, representatives from a range of different tech companies, and members of the civil society community. It also involved a quantitative survey of state, local, and federal law enforcement officials. And the survey results are notable. Hopefully, you can all read at least a little bit of this. Um, the survey, according to the survey results, um, those surveys found difficulties accessing, analyzing, and utilizing digital evidence in over a third of their cases. Um, we believe that that's a problem that's only going to continue to grow as digital information becomes more and more ubiquitous and its digital evidence is needed in just about every criminal investigation. Now this chart shows the response to the question, what is the biggest challenge that your department encounters in using digital evidence? And accessing data from service providers was ranked as the key challenge amongst our respondents, separate and apart from questions about interpretation. Identifying which service provider um, has the data was reported as the number one challenge. 30% um, of our respondents ranked it as their biggest problem. Obtaining the data once it was identified was reported as the number two challenge. 29% of our respondents, or 25% of our respondents ranked it as their number two challenge, as, as their biggest challenge. Accessing data from a device was 19% um, ranked it as the biggest challenge that they faced. And then collectively analyzing data from devices and analyzing data from providers that's been disclosed from providers, which are two separate things combined, that's about 21% um, said that that was their biggest problem. Now this is important because these are problems that can be fixed or at least largely reduced um, with, um, without um, huge changes in, in, in the system, but with more resources and more dedicated um, systematic um, thought to, to, to addressing these problems. So to the extent that law enforcement doesn't know where to go to get data of interest, that is a problem that can be solved with better information flows and better training. To the extent that law enforcement faces challenges in obtaining data, that is a bigger challenge. And we heard two very different stories from the law enforcement officials we talked to and the provider community. Um, the law enforcement officials talked about um, what they perceived as very long delays in getting information back from service providers, what they per perceived as service providers dragging their feet, of service providers having insufficient resources to respond to um, their need, of requests being slow walked or turned down in what they perceived to be um, invalid circumstances. Providers on their side told us a very different story. They complained about what they saw as overbroad requests, about law enforcement asking for things that just simply weren't available, as delays being um, the fault of law enforcement as they were um, internally debating and deciding whether or not to get um, non-disclosure orders that would prohibit the provider from telling their customer or subscriber that the customer's or subscriber's data had been obtained and providers um, holding off at law enforcement requests um, on turning over the data until they um, learned whether or not they had permission to tell the customer or the subscriber. Now, the data, interestingly, kind of supports both sides of the story. Um, this chart shows the requests from that were issued, that US law enforcement issued to six key companies, Facebook, Microsoft, Twitter, Google, Yahoo, and Apple over time. This is based on the company's own transparency reporting. There is no other good source of this data. 
Um, and not surprisingly, you see from this chart um, a pretty dramatic increase in requests over a pretty short period of time. These show requests in six-month intervals. So in a six-month period ending in December of 2013, there are about 400,000 requests to, US, to these six U.S.-based providers. Um, by December 2017, the previous six months before that, that Oh, not quite, but almost doubled or at least increased by a significant amount to about 650,000, almost 700,000 requests um, in the past, in the prior, prior six-month period. Now, what's interesting about this chart is that the grant rates have hovered more or less at about the same rate, at about 80%. So they've been consistent over time in terms of the percentage of requests or demands that providers complied with. Um, but that also means that the number, the absolute number of requests that are being turned down or the number of disclosure demands that are not being complied with is higher, given that there's a bigger volume of actual requests. Um, so and to some extent, law enforcement is frustrated because they're sensing this, this bigger sense this bigger number of request denials, whereas providers are saying, we, you know, we're pretty consistent in how we've been treating this over time. Now, two caveats about this data. The chart only shows where the requests were actually made, not where the requests were not made because the law enforcement didn't know where to go or were otherwise stymied in making the request. And the grant rates say absolutely nothing about the legitimacy of either the requests or the grounds for rejecting the request. And there is and there should be some ongoing disagreement about the appropriate scope of a request. This is an area where some friction is not only healthy, it's actually um, productive, and it's just going to persist um, inevitably because there's different views about the appropriate scopes of these um, requests. But there's also a number of areas with respect to um, grant rates and law enforcement um, issuance of requests to providers where there is unnecessary friction. And some of the reduction in that friction can both support privacy and security at the same time. So some of the things that, that can be helpful in this regard are better up-to-date law enforcement guides provided by the providers, um, resourcing of law enforcement teams by the providers, better training and dissemination of that training to state and local um, law enforcement officers, better training of judges that review and approve the range of requests subject to court order or warrants. Um, and these have obvious security benefits in the sense that it provides law enforcement um, more um, streamlined ability to access data of interest, but it also has privacy benefits to the extent that it leads to better tailored, better, um, more privacy protective requests and less, um, and, and as a result, um, more tailored, more narrow requests. Now, to the extent that um, that law enforcement cannot interpret data that's disclosed, this is a problem that stems in part from encryption, but also what we heard over and over again was from the absence of technical tools to decipher non-encrypted data that was disclosed. Um, so this is a problem that results, one, from an absence of tools to some extent, and also a distribution problem. So sometimes some of the bigger um, law enforcement entities would have access to the appropriate tools, but it was not disseminated um, to the 18,000 state and local um, law enforcement entities that exist around the country. Um, so despite what appears to us to be pretty clear need and a pretty easy to identify solutions with respect to resourcing training, resources training and dissemination of tools, 
the sole federal entity with an explicit mission to better facilitate cooperation between law enforcement and providers is the FBI's National Domestic Communications Center, or NDCAC for short. It has a budget of just $11.4 million this fiscal year, and that's spread out among several different programs designed to distribute knowledge about service providers' policies and products, develop and share technical tools, train law enforcement, maintain a 24-7 hotline center, among many other initiatives. That is a drop in the bucket given the need that's out there. The, one of the key, uh, most highly regarded training centers, the National Computer Forensic Institute, which is run by the Secret Service, fights for appropriations every year. This year it got 1.9 million, enough to train 1,200 students. If it were fully funded, it could train over 3,000, but that too is just a drop in the bucket when you consider that there's 18,000 federal, state, and local entities across the country. That's just the number of entities, not the number of individuals working at those entities. Entities. Um, there are a range of state um, and local training centers and resources and other and some other federal resources that, that have um, arisen to fill some of these gaps, but as you can see, um, they are not geographically distributed evenly, much higher concentration on the East Coast, to some extent the West Coast, big swaths in the middle where there's, there's not much in terms of resources and training centers. Um, and there's no central entity for determining what's out there, what works, what doesn't, and how to best allocate these resources. So this then gets me to my rec our recommendations, which is um, the creation of a national digital evidence office um, that's authorized and resourced by Congress that would sit in DOJ and that would do um, the kind of work that's needed to both assess what's out there and ensure a more um, efficient and reasoned distribution of resources. So develop a national digital evidence policy, coordinate the ongoing efforts that are out there, including grant making. There's a lot of different grant making bodies. They're not well coordinated currently. Identify and rectify some of the gaps. Um, establish and promote um, consistent set of standards for securing and minimizing the data that is collected, um, developing authentication systems to ensure that the person who is asking for the request is in fact, in, asking for the data is in fact entitled to receive that data, um, coordinate with some of the interesting international efforts that are, on the, that are ongoing and report to Congress and um, promote transparency about what is and in fact going on. Um, we've also called on Congress to authorize the ENDICAC. The ENDICAC sits within the FBI. It does not have an independent authorization at the moment to authorize and adequately resource ENDICAC to do its job. Um, to um, This would serve within the broader digital policy office, so you have the synergy between the technologists who are actually aware of what's going uh, of the technology and are aware of what's going on in the field and the challenges in the field with some of the policy folks, um, and again, allow NDCAC to do what, what it already um, is trying to do, but is trying to do on very, a very slim budget, which is conduct and disseminate trainings, gather and disseminate information about service providers, develop and disseminate the technical tools, provide a hotline system. And then we've also included a series of recommendations to providers. Um, providers um, 
to, to step up some of their training efforts. Having a centralized body like Endicac where they can go can help facilitate that. One of the things that we heard from providers over and over again is that we do do trainings, but there is such, there's 18,000 federal, state, and local law enforcement entities across the country. There's rapid turnover. It's like a cat and mouse game. But having some sort of centralized place that can then disseminate the training and then lead to better, more tailored requests is helpful both for the law enforcement folks and for the provider folks. Um, so provide trainings, maintain online portals to facilitate um, to facilitate the request process um, to help also with the authentication to some extent. Um, provide explanations for rejection so there can be a dialogue. Ensure appropriate staffing to meet the needs. Um, provide rapid responses. What is an adequate response is going to change based on what is being requested. Um, so we don't include specific time limits in there, but and also maintain um, the transparency that providers already are doing with respect, at least the big providers, with respect to the law enforcement requests that they get, but to break that down even more in terms of um, in terms of the categories of request and um, and over time um, a range of other um, different smaller categories as well. And finally, this is not on here, but important to think as well about providers, some of the bigger providers working with and helping to develop best practices for the range of smaller providers that are increasingly coming on the market and that are going to have to deal with this bucket of issues as well. Um, so I'll end by just saying that the challenges are only going to grow over time. We think this is low-hanging fruit, hence the title. Um, these are structures and resources that need to be put in place now um, because the needs are only going to expand um, as we move forward. And um, in our view, this has benefits both for security and for privacy and allows us to do something as the debates about encryption continue to, to, to rage. So thanks. Thank you so much, Jen. You're reminding me of an anecdote I heard from a, you know, but a, a, somebody who worked for a, a, a tech company who said he had recounted getting a, a kind of a confused email from, from a law enforcement officer who said, oh, these files you sent me that we requested, uh, they're all encrypted. We need you to help us decrypt them. And they said, they're not encrypted. That's a spreadsheet. You need to open it in, in Excel. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, you know, the cases are not usually that extreme, but I think a pattern we see is that very often um, there are automatic calls for greater authority um, to solve problems that are often more about institutional competence and knowledge uh, and ability to navigate uh, changing technological structures than about a need for more power. But that is always the easiest demand to make. Uh, so I want to thank our flash talkers, and I want to... Um, Invite you to join us upstairs for lunch. Uh, I hope you'll join us for the afternoon session as well. Uh, and in particular, that uh, you will stick around, or if you have to leave, at least return uh, at the end of the day uh, when we'll be leading a group over to the Smithsonian American Art Museum uh, for a tour of the Trevor Paglin exhibition, I imagine. So please join me in thanking our speakers one last time and join us upstairs for lunch. Thank you.